This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined in the studio by JJ Bull, the bullet. Hi, JJ. Hi, this is going well. I'm having a good time. Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Hello. Ah, guten Tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's du? Hmm, Wie geht's is good. Yes. How are you, Joe? I'm fine. So much better for seeing a lovely pair of gates. Now, the Premier League 22-23 started this weekend. We'll be discussing that today, including Crystal Palace Arsenal. Are Arsenal good? Who could say? Someone here will. Leicester Brentford. That's an odd choice for second billing, but so be it. Man United. We all know what's going to happen when we discuss them. Of course, Erling Haaland arrived to play against uh, West Ham, everyone's dream debut. And Fulham gave a two fingers to Liverpool two goals. (laughs) Of course, we're going to head on to the continent as well. The mainland continent to discuss all things from Germany. Not all things, actually, just specifically one thing. And uh, other things too. You know, if you like other things, then you shouldn't get The Athletic because The Athletic isn't an other thing. It's the main thing in all of our lives. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where you can find such interesting reads and news stories as JJ Bull. David Ornstein has just got an exclusive about some of Barcelona's financial wizardry. They are doing some incredible things. My word, Frankie de Jong's having a lovely time there. Yeah, some I'd interesting re- stuff as it relates to his contract, isn't there? Jiggery pokery. Jiggery pokery, yeah. yeah. Shenanigans. We won't be discussing yeah. that today because as the story develops, we'll cover it in other ways. And and John so covered it in our business we've class. covered it already. Yeah. Point being, if you want it to be covered for you, you should get The Athletic. At theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where all things good are. That's right. Now, it's uh, time for uh, today's episode, so I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of our brand new podcast producer. It's Steve Hankey. Uh, Steve, what do you prefer to be uh, called? Yeah, Steve Hankey's good. Hankles it is. Okay, uh, Hankle time. Daddy Steve. Daddy Steve. We're in new hands here, guys. Uh, Steve's going to join us perma-join, and uh, there's already a new layer, a new level of organisational quality added to this podcast, as you can tell from having listened. (laughs) From the 45 minutes it's taken. To the 45-minute intro. Yes. There we go. Anyway, it's his warm hands and cool embrace that you'll be left in today, and I hope for many days to come, until he eventually quits. (laughs) Because he fucking hates us. (laughs) Yes! Crystal Palace nil to Arsenal. Two Arsenal. See, uh, John McKenzie, are Arsenal good? It's very confusing for me. Yeah, I think there's lots of caveats to asking that sort of question because I think people still expect Crystal Palace to be not that good. And mm. I think it was clear last season that, that they are perhaps better than a lot of people think. It's a tough opening game, isn't it? Tough opening game, yeah, for sure. One of the hardest games to play outside of the top six. So uh, away from home, first game of the season, tough, tough prospect. But mm. um, Arsenal, I thought, were really good in the first half. Are they control the game. I did a replay analysis of, of the game on the whistle and my take was Arsenal really, really controlled the game through the, the first pretty much 40 minutes of the game and then that control was let slip and when you do that against a team like Crystal Palace who have the ability to attack pretty ruthlessly down both wings, uh, they have a, a really great long ball specialist in Joachim Anderson, mm-hmm. spelt with an E, uh, yep. I found out on, in the YouTube comments. To your displeasure. To my displeasure. 
but yeah, it then became a much more open affair. And uh, I think Arsenal, in the end, maybe a little bit fortuitous to get that goal right at the end. Mm. I think they held it together well enough, but the 2-0 scoreline probably flatters them a little bit. Well, it's interesting, is it? Because going through pre-season towards the end of last season, you know, Arsenal showed that they could be a fantastic team at times. There's been a couple of uh, additions now as well. Uh, Jonathan Liu tweeted over the weekend that if Saka now has a right foot, then frankly, the entire 2022-23 season needs rethinking. We see them as a team that really have the potential to, to push on and finish in, in the top four. Negotiating the tricky opening game away against Pass, it does it does feel like even though things were slightly more difficult for them in the second half, can you, you can see and pick things out from that performance that, I mean, it's going to serve them well this season, isn't it? Yeah, I think Mikel Arteta is a really good manager in terms of the tactical side of things. So they definitely have that grounding the issue I always have with Arsenal is they're such a young squad and obviously there's almost no point talking about intangibles other than saying that those things are there. But I think we've seen enough evidence now that this Arsenal team can be got at, I think, in certain situations. So they can have a momentum for a long period of time. But then as soon as a few things can happen, then then they can maybe wobble a little bit. And so mm. there's a couple of instances where Aaron Ramsdale was a little bit shaky in possession. And then Palace had two pretty decent chances just before the second half started. And I think as a result of that, you saw a little bit of that fragility creeping in. Uh, and I think that's going to be the trick for Arteta is going to be able to, because we know that they can do it. They've done it. They've they've mm. beaten big teams last season. They've played smart football against everyone. It's just sometimes that you get the, you get the sense that because they are a younger team, they don't have so many experienced heads. Sometimes they are uh, likely to, to just have a bit of a wobble and that's sort of what happened. Well, as it relates to weaving the narrative, there is no bigger weekend than the opening weekend for that to happen. I think we'll come back to discuss this again with other opening games, but it did feel like during the second half particularly, Arsenal could have lost control of the game, that the result could have been different and we might be having a very different conversation now. So I'm keen not to either be sort of uh, overblown by Arsenal or expect too much from them. And, and also I don't want to, you know, I don't want to underplay that the result could have been slightly different. Something I suppose that we can't really underplay is their set pieces at the moment. And they scored the first goal from set pieces. I have here in my notes, thanks Hankles, that uh, uh, Nicholas Jurva is their specialist uh, coach in that regard. And it's really showing. I'm not sure if I, I, I like factual Joe. Yeah, it's wrong, isn't it? Yeah. It feels wrong. Well, but a really nice set piece. Yeah. Um, Obviously, there, there was lots of nice movement. I think Zinchenko coming in at the back post and then mm. playing it back across to a space where obviously Arsenal had targeted um, a few of their players in there. Good stuff. And I, I think that's the thing for me with, with Arsenal is that they, they just seem like a really well-rounded team, regardless of what you think of Arsenal and the level that they're at. In terms of the tactical side of things, they can they can almost just do everything to a, to a fairly good standard. And mm. I think that puts them in good stead to, to be a decent top six side this season. Yeah, OK. Seb, do you know... If, I mean, because uh, Zinchenko, it was, his, it was his debut, of course, he played very well. He played at left back, but that is potentially because Kieran Tierney was injured. Do you know if the expectation is to play him in midfield at times when, when Tierney is, is available? Because Tierney's one of their better players, isn't he? Yeah, I'd imagine so. I think if you're, if you're going to spend the money that Arsenal did on a player like Zinchenko, I'm sure the ambition is to kind of employ him as a utility player and have him as, a, as someone who can help you navigate some of the difficulties that arise during a season. If you think about the last month, two months of Arsenal's 21-22 year, um, I think one of the things that derailed them beyond intangibles, the things that John has already referenced, is ill-fitting pieces in bad positions. Mm. And Zinchenko helps that. I, I have to think, I always, always enjoy watching him play for his country more than I ever did for Manchester City. So my hope is to see him in midfield more often because I think that's the place where you can see the rainbow of his abilities. But I imagine he'll be used in, in more than one role. The other thing is Tierney is had a track record of injury problems forever, like even in Celtic days. Mm. So you know he's not going to play every single game. Zinchenko can 100% swap for that. But I wonder whether it would be a little bit of what Pep Guardiola does with Man City and they manage the workload of players. They don't play every single game. Obviously, you have good players to be able to do that. And uh, at the front four they've got, of like Odegaard and Saka, and what are you looking at? I'm just looking at the thing you're <laughs> the holding. Bottle, uh, yeah. Yeah, You've got holding. a bottle lid, yeah. holding onto it for security comfort reasons. It's like chewing pens, right? Yeah. You just do that all the you time. You just want to hold a bottle lid. Here, like chew my sunglasses. Just to be clear for audio listeners, it's like one of the big coffee, hot coffee bottle lids. Anyway, you carry on squeezing that and keep saying what you were saying. Yes. Arsenal have a very good team. The first team is good now, and they want to get the squad better. Man City always have better players, so mm. Guardiola can more better rotate them mm. and give them like 26 <laughs> games each or something like that rather yeah. than having all that so I think Zinchenko like I said saying will play in midfield a lot I think he's a good like a, he's a good midfielder he's maybe not top tier but he'll be able to give them an option certainly when Jacques is not playing he could play that left-sided free eight kind of 
role, right? So yeah. it's the double pivot in defence, but then he moves forward and becomes one of the yeah. four players there. It's a really good squad signing. Yeah, 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 for sure. John, also a much anticipated debut for William Saliba, who it wasn't really that clear you know, at the end of last season whether he was going to come back or not. It seems odd, I will say, having watched the game and seen his Man of the Match performance, that there was ever any question, but there was question. Yeah, it's weird, weird um, reality in that he's been consistently very good in Ligue 1 and not been favoured seemingly at Arsenal. But I, I suppose that performance puts a lot of that to bed. I, I think it'd be hard not to play him now. But yeah, really, just a really, really sort of aggressive defender, but also in a controlled way in terms of comparing him to someone like Ben White who played there last season like much better in the air a much more defensive player where, mm. where Ben White is, is better on the ball and so I think that combination that they have of White on the right and, and Saliba on, on the inside right is just going to be really tough to break down yeah They'll, they'll change with Tommy Asu's back though. I think a little. Who, who's going to be dropped from? From would it be would it white, be Gabriel that's dropped or White? One of them. Well, I mean, Saliba was so good in that game that you think maybe he'd start. But I think they'll just they'll rotate whoever's playing well at the time. Sure. Look at Man City have had Laporte, Stones, Diaz, yeah. and they've all swapped around Ake now as well. Mm. Problem I have with what you're saying is yeah. that uh, when uh, an excellent team is comfortably rotated and every player plays 23 games a season. There's no drama for me to, to hang on to, you know? Yes, what I want is a, the human story. I want someone who wants it more or um, wants it less or, you know, who, who wants nothing. This idea that Arsenal didn't... Like, like, like Saliba's been on loan, right? It was mm. it Saint-Etienne, wasn't it? Uh, Marseille. Marseille, was he was, Marseille. He was from Saint-Etienne. Oh, yeah, right, that's right. Yeah. But he's then proved himself as a player there over the two years. If you've been at Arsenal, if you make a mistake, you get hounded out. It's so mm. much pressure. You lose confidence. You don't develop the way you want. It makes total sense to put a young, especially a centre-back, to somewhere abroad where they can learn in a more familiar environment, get themselves to the level where they know they're confident and know they can step up straight mm. away, rather than put them in there. I mean, it's what loans, the loan system is meant to be for, so you bring these players up to the level they should be. Steve Hankey started putting notes in the dark. <laughs> Should we read them? Yeah. Steve Hankey says, he started at Saint-Étienne and then loans to Nice and Marseille. Yeah? yeah? Was it worth it? Oh, what do you yeah. think? Steve Hankey says it was worth it. That's good. You know what's good about that Marseille line is that they're, what was good about they're that quite turbulent. Line, well, that's a turbulent club too. Like if you go there, there's always drama at Marseille. Mm. There's always managerial turnover. And the relationship between the fans and the first team isn't the easiest. So you kind of have not necessarily arsenal light, but Premier league light by going there because you deal with some of the things you're going to encounter as a first team regular in the Premier League. And he grows a person as well, mm. right? So there's the thing. So yeah, exactly. It might, it might be, exactly. It might be that his football ability is clearer to see. But off the pitch, I don't know this about him. So, but it might be that a manager's identified that this person needs to develop as a person to mm-hmm. be able to be ready to handle the pressures of what would be the Premier League. I mean, it's more of a spotlight on you. It's just bigger than Marseille. So. Oh yeah, I'm not advocating that he should have been brought sooner than he was. I would talk, I'm purely talking about how it's weird that there were it was possibility that he wasn't ever even going to come back to Arsenal, especially oh, yeah. with the lack of depth they had at centre back. Because now you, yeah. the, the thing with Arsenal this season is that they they just seem so much more flexible. Like yeah. last season, they felt a little bit one dimensional. They did tweak things towards the end of the season when Tierney was injured and they played Tommy Asu on the left. Yeah. And that sort of started allowing them to do that inversion thing where they're, they're bringing their left back inside. But now if you bring Tommy Asu back on the right, you can invert him on the right. You can change, you can, you can change your approach and your system depending on who you're facing mm-hmm. to get upside from that as well. And, and obviously Zinchenko fits in there too because as you've said, Zinchenko can either play as an inverted left back. You could play him as a classic left back if you wanted, but you've also got Kieran Tierney who's going to play that role probably better than Zinchenko. Yeah. But you could play Zinchenko, as you said, as one of those free eights as well. So it just gives Arteta a little bit more to work with compared to last season, I think. Well, there were many rotating cast members in the Arsenal squad. And of course, there are also rotating cast members in the All or Nothing television series that was released last week by Amazon about Arsenal. I watched a little bit of this, JJ. You watched some of it too, didn't you? Yeah, I love watching these. I love yeah. the way they're put together. One of the things I noticed, which is a bit nerdy, that I enjoy about it, is the colour grading. It's mm. so nice and vibrant. The colours look, look amazing. Yeah. It looks like an American reality sort of show where they put music on to make you feel feelings. Which is what it is. So you're meant to feel feelings that even you weren't thinking at the time. They'll build yeah. a narrative around it. They'll definitely recreate scenes to make sure it fits what they're doing. Yeah. The editing work on it is superb. Yeah. To turn that story into what they have and identify exactly where it is, the cameras, there's sure. so many cameras to pick from. I like the, the placing of them in the crowd. I like the, the access they get to people like Josh Cronkey. Uh, you see mm-hmm. his name? He comes across. I think he comes across all right. You're saying that as though I said something different off air. No, <laughs> I thought he came across all right. 
Yeah, you know, fine. I, I, I think Daniel Levy came across a certain way in the Spurs one from mm. last year. And I think from the limited amount of it I've watched so far, Josh Cronkay comes across in a similar way. Mm. That's fine. I like seeing Can the... I just say, I, I'd like to draw, you know, because I think one of the... People have criticisms of shows like this, right? And yeah. it's that they, they, they appear to purport themselves to be something other than what they are, right? They seem like a documentary, they're not. That's not what they are. It's They're, a drama. It's entertainment and drama. And of course, there'll be like a there'll be a certain amount of club sign off and a certain amount of club buy in. It's not news and it's not independent of the people that appear within the show. It doesn't mean it can't be good or fun as long as everybody's clear of what it is. Do you know what's interesting? Sort of on that note, if you think about it, football is really just a reality TV show. Yeah. Because you're just watching people compete and sure. you're very open to their lives and you watch them all the time and the stories are built around them. Um, yeah. The other thing I like about it is that as, as someone who studies and analyzes football teams as my job, I really like seeing what the managers do and the human connection they have. There's a the couple of Michael Scott moments where like, Arteta brings on the cameraman to then say, like, oh, I love this club, that sort yeah. of stuff. But he's just trying little motivational things he'll have learned from people like Arsene Wenger and Pep Guardiola, I assume. Sure. Some of them come across quite... There's one where he says, like, close your eyes, and the players even make fun of him after when they win. You don't know how effective some of these things are, but... Mm. It's interesting that... What does he do with the close your eyes bit? He says he's trying to get him to visualise things. So no, he do it on me when now. they're like doing this with their hands? No, they, I can't They close their eyes and then they have to do this with their hands. Try, and then it, they, try it on me now. I want to try it. You, you do it. You close your eyes and you visualise it and you do this really visualize quickly. Visualise what? What am I, I visualising? So, t- do I don't it know, to me. It's like winning. like winning the game. Imagine you've scored. Imagine no, you've he was, won. He was, talking about te- he was talking about team connection, right? And he got everyone to like shake, close their eyes rub the hands together and then hold hands with each other and presumably you like generate some kind of static and, it's you, too and you feel a connection my hands are sweating I also don't want to hold hands with either of you right no. now there's so. also like a psychological thing where then you can go to a good place if you do that because yeah, you've got right. this good feeling of visualising visualizing winning and that helps you trigger it do you and know also when I go get... to a good place what's that when I eat a tub of Ben and Jerry's and then I go to a bad place very quickly <laughs> <laughs> and then I go to the toilet Anyway, a club that could also be in the toilet, no, that's not right, uh, is Leicester. <laughs> We're going to talk about Leicester uh, because uh, I think um, some interesting stuff going on at Leicester Seb at the moment. Leicester, weird situation. Have they, they still, am I right in thinking they're the only club in Europe, the top leagues, who have not signed anyone yet? That is correct, Joe. Mm. They are still without a new signing. Tell yeah. me more. Well, I think when something like that happens, it has a habit of dictating how you respond to them in the early weeks of the season. So I sat down to watch the game, ready to kind of think all kinds of negative things and make all kinds of negative comments. And for the first hour, they were actually really good. The mm. The midfield balance issue from last season, most of you remember the, um, from last year, the many, 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 many times opposition players kind of ran through the middle of Leicester's midfield on the transition. They looked horribly exposed on the counter. They had that raft of... Um, Defensive set piece issues, which were never really properly diagnosed or, or or remedied, very very strange. It lasted the entire year, and for now they're very very good and deservedly led two 0 Balance of midfield was excellent. I think I misdiagnosed it as a three four one two. It was really really more of a three five one one, and it worked brilliantly because you had Ndidi, Tielemans, Dewsbury Hall as a sort of midfield three. Between those three, you sort of have all the midfield attributes you want. Mm. You have the distribution, you have the kind of the all-round game of Ndidi, you have the, the kind of the attacking ability of a Dewsbury Hall, but also the, the size. And then in front of him, Madison just playing off, off Jamie Vardy, and it just felt right. Brennan Rogers went to a back three, which you remember him doing when things went slightly wrong at Liverpool. He kind of reinvented them and, and tried to kind of revert to a back three and talked about how he'd done that over tea and toast at four in the morning in his kitchen. Mm. And it was good... They didn't survive a little tactical tweak from Thomas Frank. So Brentford started in 4-3-3 and were absolutely dreadful for an hour. They were just they just weren't in the game, they were very, very passive. None of the kind of the direct force that they were able to force into games last season. Frank took off, Ben Mee went to a 5-4-1, and Leicester never recovered. Yeah. And then Brendan, I, I don't know whether this was kind of terminal for Leicester, but kind of responded by bringing on Pats and Dakar, taking off Dewsbury Hall. And you can understand, like you, you bring in someone like Daka who has a huge amount of pace on the counter. Brentford have got a goal back, and so the logic is fairly clear. Chase the game, you have that counter-attacking outlet, and who better than Daka? Because he's probably one of the quickest players in the league. And it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where Brentford, I think the, the moment that summed it up is actually probably the Brentford equaliser because lovely moment for Joshua Silva because he's had a, a terrible time with injuries mm. and he's, he's a wonderful player. Just He's had a little bit of a failure to launch in the Premier League. Cuts and field, great finish. But 
look at kind of this massive corridor of space with into which he wanders to do it. It's, it's actually, you know, when goals don't really pass the eye test and they don't, there's something about it which doesn't look quite right, has a sort of a training ground aesthetic to it. Leicester were well-intentioned tactically. It's just that you could see that this had been something, that, that this was a system still under construction. Brentford could have won the game. They were sort of a very narrow offside decision away from um, winning 3-2. I was speaking to Ali Clarkson of TIFO, one of our mm. lovely guys in the building. Big Ali Clarkson of TIFO. And he Leicester, watches, Leicester fan. He watches Leicester fan, watches every single game, and I was talking to him about this. So like the setup to me, when looking at it, I've not watched the full game, but the setup looked like it's kind of that, I mean, Brendan Rodgers likes the kind of Cruyff stuff. He He's from that world. That's the kind of things he likes. And it sounds like the old Cruyff 3-4-3. We have a diamond in the midfield with Madison behind Vardy. And the thing that Ali said to me this morning that maybe think of this was that the wing backs are pushed really high up from the start right and then the big thing is that after the game after they'd drawn it felt like a loss Brendan Rodgers said that the players well they were tired and the guy interviewing them said well why didn't you make more than one substitution then because Brentford made five mm. <laughs> that probably has quite a lot to do with it forget like tactics and system it's going to be that the players are maybe a bit tired playing this and then mm. and the, the first half has been described to me as being like so in control it was almost boring to watch yeah just total control of it and then you I mean, maybe he's not making the substitutions. Maybe this is, feeds into the bigger narrative, not sign any players. Is it part of a, look, I don't want to put any of these guys on to give myself the yeah. fresh legs because I don't want them on because even though they're fresher, could they he, make could he be worse. showing the board the need for, for that, refreshment, um, perhaps? Let's that fatigue that thing is weird. narrative, yeah. Because to me, like, you know when, when Brentford counter, they, they have that thing where their front three, three players kind of splay out um, to cover as much of the pitch as possible and stretch a defence. The problem that Leicester found... Um, time and again was that they would have their back three and then they would have their wing backs completely out of position so you had this huge ocean of space between centre back wing back and Brentford exposed that again and again and again and with players who are really effective at doing that and who are really dangerous in that situation so okay fatigue is one thing but if you've got a problem which is easy enough for you know any any fan or any 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 neutral watching to diagnose I don't think you can play the tiredness card just Mm. doesn't doesn't really it doesn't really stack up Okay, well, I'll point listeners towards an excellent piece uh, by Stuart James on The Athletic, summing up the situation at Leicester at the moment. We'll, we'll return to talk about it more in the, in the future, uh, because, of course, there are uh, rumours around Wesley Fofana and uh, Yuri Tielemans, as well as potentially Callum Hudson-Odoi uh, joining. We don't know, but we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that again in the future. And instead, we'll depart, as Kasper Schmeichel did, to France, Seb, uh, to talk about Nice, because not only has Kasper Schmeichel left Leicester, somewhat surprisingly to me, uh, to, to go play for Nice, so has Aaron Ramsey, and I believe he scored in a, in a in his debut a 1-1 with Toulouse yes uh, very interesting uh, with his first touch another interesting bit of information is that um, mm. the zone uh, neglected to show this game yesterday in Germany so I believe you should probably go to John for this oh segment. well that's yeah. very interesting yeah. and uh, John what do you think about that about coming to me Yes. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> what would you have to say about that? Uh, yeah, I watched this game, um, mm, and it was relief. very interesting. That's a fucking relief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to have to go to JJ next. We're going to end up with, with Hankles over yeah. there. <laughs> Hankles on the, on the mic, yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting game. Obviously, Nice, nice are a club who are owned by Ineos, which is the... Obviously. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> yeah everyone does that. Yeah. Ineos. Yeah. Ineos. Uh, I know them. Ineos are the chemical company owned by Jim Ratcliffe, who is the most rich... The richest British man. I did know that. See? Look at that buried knowledge. Did Hankles not write that in the running order? Oh, did he? I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a little bit Hankles. Missing a trick there, mate. Come on. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So, obviously, Nice are making some sort of high... uh, I guess higher profile signings than you might expect um, for for a French team. Um, But actually... (laughs) Sorry, carry on. <laughs> what else is obvious about Nice? <laughs> That's a genuine sight. <laughs> no, do carry on. Uh, they were playing against Toulouse, who mm. obviously are... Um, uh, yeah, the- <laughs> <laughs> I got him. I got him. Toulouse have, have just been promoted. They are owned by Redbird Capital, who are the company, the, the, the group of... Well, the group that owns... Um, Amongst other things, AC Milan. Oh, it's the same, the very same. Yeah, so oh. uh, the, these the, Redbird Capital are a group who are proud of their, their data analysis uh, and they're, they're buying teams and using smart data analysis to, to promote teams into mm. higher leagues and generate value. Um, and they seem to have done a pretty good job with Toulouse because I watched this game expecting Nice to comfortably win. Well, why wouldn't and, you? Yeah. yeah, they were they were pretty much outplayed for most of the game. Oh. Um, they did, obviously, Nice brought on, obviously, Nice brought on um, 
Aaron Ramsey. Yeah. Towards the end of the game, he scored with his first touch, but that was basically all that they they did in terms of um, in terms of looking dangerous. So okay. yeah, kind of an interesting one, really. Well, I want to stay in France with you, John, now, because I, I wonder who, who, who's going to finish second. A lovely first goal for Nuno on loan at Marseille, of course, and a fellow Arsenal loanee, Florian Balogun, scoring on his debut at Rome as well. Uh, a Marseille contender for second? Look at me go. Uh, yeah, that's Nuno Tavares for, for those people who don't mm. know that that, that that is the case. Nuno um, Tavares, yes, I knew so that. Obviously, we've just been talking about... <laughs> We've just been talking about um, All or Nothing, and Nuno Tavares was a key player in some of the episodes there. Yes, indeed. Um, an, Arsenal, an Arsenal, Arsenal youngster, gone across to Marseille and scored a goal, and actually his his team teammate. Can you talk about a teammate if you're playing for different teams? I think Probably that's not. fine, yeah. Um, clubmate. 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 Florian yeah. Balogun scored... Um, is, it, is that his name, Florian? Is it not Folloran? Folloran? Florian? I don't know. It's, it's not Hankles. It's, it's Falloran, I think. Falloran. Mate, this guy just think. arriving here trying to tell us what we can <laughs> and can't say on the podcast and he's getting people's names wrong. Hmm. I think he could have done a George of Vainism as well and said, it sounds like Toulouse did well, not... Yeah. I've been thinking that all weekend and then I thought maybe it's too obvious. Yeah. I shouldn't well, I go for that. Well, Falloran Balogun. Well, listen, let, let me ask you this instead, uh, John, uh, because Christophe Galtier has joined PSG as their new coach. He plays in a sort of quite specific way, which seems a little un-PSG-ish, although, uh, you know, they've also said that ownership has said recently that the era of bling-bling is over. Have we seen that yet? Yeah, Galtier has been playing a slightly different structure to the 4-4-2 that we've seen him play elsewhere. Oh, so he's, he playing? He's playing 3-4-3, three, three, basically, to, oh. to try and get everyone in. Um and it, it's working really well. Right. Um, so it looks like it's like PSG could. I mean, there was people it's talking well in France where they're better than everyone else. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there have been times when they've had managers who haven't made them look as good as they should be. So it's a fairly ominous sign if there's people talking about whether or not they can break the uh, points record in. in Messi looks really, uh, really yeah. healthy. Like compared yeah. to last year, he looks much more dynamic and much more kind of. I don't know whether focus is quite the right word, but. Um, just looked better conditioned than he has done in quite a few years. Well, now. when I, I arrived this morning, funny. JJ insisted that I watch his overhead kick goal. Yeah, I think Messi's going to go like supersonic this year and be back on like 40, 50 goals a season. Oh, mm. That fourth uh, PSG goal was just, it's like a piece of art. It was like something that you'd see from kind of um, the Pete, Neymar and Messi era yeah. at Barcelona. It was lovely bit of football. And do you know as well, Seb, because... Uh, if you think all during his career, if he has like a bad year, he comes back the next year yeah. like even more powerful than before. Like, you know, if you strike him down, <laughs> he will yeah. return. To he like regenerates in. at twice the size. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's respawned. I well, can see him. He's already scored. I think he scored three goals already in his first two games. Oh. Like it wasn't. I mean, in, I think it was in June. Is that the sixth month? Yes, he scored five goals in one game for Argentina. Yeah. I think he's going to do quite well. I think he's rather a good player, right. young Leo Messi. Well, I'm speaking of aging attackers. <clears throat> We'll come back after this break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. What a lovely break that was, not it? A nice break. Mm. Enjoyed that. Manchester United won to Brighton, JJ. Uh, difficult open for Ten Hag. Yeah. Yeah. We did a video on this on Tifo IRL, which would be uh, a lovely thing for you to watch after you've listened to this podcast mm. or whatever. Uh, Analysing all the different bits and pieces, so we don't have to do too much, but essentially you learn very quickly that Man United are still garbage and Brighton had them... Completely sussed out from yeah. the start. Graham Potter played like Rogers as Leicester actually. The kind of Cruyff Diamond three four three kind of shape with the mm-hmm. wing backs pushed really far forward. Really hard for ta- uh, United to deal with tactically. But I think the real issue is that what is fundamentally important to that Ten Hag style of play is that the six is able to link the defence with the midfield and also be able to thread passes through lines so they can progress play. And Fred cannot do it. Mm-hmm. I think Fred's not the worst player in the world. I think he's all right in a certain system. I think he's better going forward like he was in the Rangnick last season. He just can't do it. He was the, the 
pressing trigger. Like Troy Deeney's talked about it before when he's at Watford in the Premier League a couple of seasons ago. They knew that Fred was the pressing trigger because he'd take too many touches or his first touch would be quite loose. McTominay, I think he was lucky to stay on with that challenge over the ball. You have McTominay in there. So he's not technically the best player, but McTominay gives you character, aggression, a bit of defensive bite, and it's really important in midfield to have that balance because what they had at the end was Eriksen playing as a six, better than Fred at it. Uh, Fernandez, who is just a wild, loose individual cowboy playing as like a 10 but floating wherever he wants yeah. and uh, Donny van de Beek who I think is really I mean he's a midfielder he can drop deep but he kind of likes to be a second striker and float in the spaces I thought he was good when he came on in the second half he was when well, were- Man United were generally improved in the second half but I thought Donny van de Beek in, in particular looked like he could have a role in the team until Brighton then changed back to the shape that they had at the start and kind of blocked him out again mm-hmm. I don't. Th- yeah, it's. It, I think he did better than McTominay because they had the stage of the game. He was able to push forward more and do more of the things he wanted to do. The same thing I've seen with Van de Beek. Almost every game I've seen him play for United, he makes the right run. He comes short off for a pass. It looks pointless. He comes short. They give him a pass and he passes back and it looks like he's done nothing. And like I think, especially, I mean, I see this playing five aside in uh, in England and Scotland is that if you go short for a pass, people don't think it's. It doesn't make any sense to pass it short mm. and they keep the ball and they wander around and they look for another pass. Just play it short because then someone comes a little bit closer to you and then you yeah. push it back and then someone else moves and you create a little bit of space yeah. each time you do it. And Van der Beek's playing that kind of Dutch style of play where it looks pointless, but it's not because something else is happening. You're setting up like this butterfly effect where everything else goes yeah. later on. And he's making good runs, not getting the ball, maybe dragging something to position, not getting the ball. He's just playing for a different team. Yeah, I mean, I think Ten Hag would having worked with him before knows how to get a lot out of him so you'd think you'd see a lot from him mm. not having a striker was when Ronaldo came on it's not because Ronaldo's it helps that he's amazing as a striker but also it just changed the entire shape of the game because suddenly at a focal point you can mm. push the team back the opposition team back and then that creates more space for everyone else to play in and they were better in the second half I think it's mostly because they put a striker on which could pin the, the centre-backs back Well you mentioned in your in your video review that Christian Eriksen of course started as a false nine I mean there was a, you know, a bit of debate about whether Fernandez was in those areas as well but one of the things that happened was both players sort of gradually dropped deeper because the ball wasn't reaching them and um, so there yeah. was no one for Brighton to worry about Because you're seeing like, it's, it's like I know I can do it better than that guy so I'll drop deep to help do it because Fred was just he couldn't play fairness to Fred he didn't shy away from it he was constantly looking for the ball mm-hmm. and that's hard to do if you know you're getting done in Yeah, uh, he looked unhappy when he got taken off at about 50 minutes I think Yeah, and they changed it around put Ronaldo on that was the big change that we that we really saw I mean we've seen that with the false nine stuff we've seen him uh, he's done it with Tadic Ajax before um, I think you did you not study that for a video we did before John yeah he used he used Tadic and Van der Beek really in, in conjunction it was quite nice because when Tadic would drop deep for the ball and Van der Beek was running into the space that it opened up and we didn't really see that and I just found the game really fascinating from a point of view watching Eric Ten Hag and what he did because he just didn't seem happy with the midfield situation at any point he he seemed to change players and and you know it started off in the in the sort of iteration that you might expect from him you've sort of got a ball playing six who's a little bit deeper than than your more defensive player in in McTominay and then you've got as you said, a, a, a sort of a, more of a 10. Uh, but by the end, it was, you had Van der Beek deep, you had Ericsson deep, um, and it, it just felt like a very, very different form of, of centre midfield that you get from, from Eric Ten Hag. So it almost gave me the impression that he's just really struggling to make that midfield work. And you've got big players, everyone talks about the lack of character they've maybe got. I think it's maybe just a lack of genuine quality in there. There's some players who should be yeah. squad players in Man United team. They're good, but they're maybe not good enough to be a first teamer for a team that wants to be first or second every single year. Mm. And so like, Ten Hag's trying to deal with this, but then you've got players who are big stars, despite not being very good. And I don't, again, I don't know. I have not seen what they're like in training. I'm sure they're receptive to information. But if you're trying to play a very specific system, you need players who are malleable, who will then do what they are asked to do. Like Brighton, each player fits the component part of that system yeah. perfectly. Like Trossard mm. wasn't exact that exact player when he went to Brighton. He's learning how to do it now. And you've got Welbeck, like perfectly functioning for that, the way that team worked. Gross and Caicedo, either side of that diamond behind Lalana, perfect in that tent. And like yeah. everyone was good at it. Like De Gea cannot play as a sweeperkeeper. He's a good goalkeeper, a good stopper, but he can't play that kind of system. So that's one problem. And a guy on massive wages a week, he can't get rid of. You can't do anything about it. He's there, he's stuck. Maguire, he was a good player at Leicester and he's been good at England. But when he's playing for Man United, there's too many things going on. Like he's trying to put out other people's fires that aren't his job. And it makes him look worse. It makes other people around him look worse. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like I mean, he might be struggling with confidence. The stuff that's happened to him uh, with crowds booing and stuff, that can't be good for you. I mean, he's, he'll be aware of the narrative around what people think of Harry Maguire. And then you've got... I mean, like, Dallow's okay. 
He's fine. Luke Shaw's, I thought he had a decent game. Mm. Uh, they just have holes all over the pits where they've got players and such big wages who are actually stars and like media celebrities that you can't really do much with them. You, you want to start again. It's a three-year project for Ten Hag. He won't get three years. Yeah. They're in trouble. Well, I mean, we've talked a lot about the mid- midfield. Uh, reports this morning, David Ornstein uh, released a, a report suggesting that Manchester United might be in for uh, Adrian Rabio from Juventus currently, ex-PSG player. Would he solve the problems, JJ? Technically, he's a very good player. He could fit in as a six. Um, I think Seb knows more about other things that might make him not the best option, though, don't you? Yeah, I mean, he's not the easiest personality. Um, during the European Championship, there was a very famous falling out between Adrian Rabiot's mother and the parents of Kylian Mbappe. So when Kylian Mbappe missed his penalty against Switzerland, there was a little bit of chatter in the stands, um, and uh, Mrs Rabiot was pretty critical of the penalty-taking technique which is the kind of off-field stuff that you probably don't need. Adrian Abreu's father, who I, who I think has now passed away, was very, very seriously ill. I, I think I'm right in saying that he had um, locked-in syndrome, which is a very, very difficult thing, I'd imagine, for a family to have to live with. But the kind of, the kind of package, uh, JJ is right, and like, he's, he's a really good player, but the package is bigger than that. You have um, a very forthright personality. You have a little bit of noise, which seemingly comes with him, and less... Um, I don't know, lessons have been learned from this time last year, I'm not sure. But it just seems like not quite the right element to introduce to a dressing room, which is already a little bit fractious. And well, that's it. And the part of the problem that yeah. has got is not he's just building the team to function as a team on the pitch. It's trying to forge... That's, that's part of the managerial job, is you're trying to make players... You're trying to create a working environment that is conducive to being competitive and can compete like it's high performance they're trying to go for and they're they don't perform at the highest level these players don't get the most out of themselves the managers Mm. have always struggled it's a strange environment it sounds like behind the scenes things don't don't seem to have a long time to have gone as smoothly or as look as professionally sound as they maybe have like some of the players they get linked to if they've got a whole scouting network in place and they're trying to identify players it looks the way liverpool went from being mid-table to where they are now with Klopp. And that took time with Klopp, by the way. Like he finished eighth, I think it's first year, something like that. Mm-hmm. It took a while to get to that stage, but they improved every single year. And Ten Hag only that same amount of time. Mm-hmm. But he'll need the right transfers in, and Klopp identified them with the scouting team that was in place. And now they're looking at players like Rabio, good player, but again, like the stuff like leaking things, to like agents making noises outside of it, creating unwanted media attention that just only builds when you're trying to get away from that. Is well, there's also, I mean, there was a story about Marco Arnautovic as well, which came out yesterday. Uh, uh, worth worth pointing out, we're recording this on Monday morning. It'll be released Tuesday. We don't know what, what state those stories will be in by the time the podcast is released. That's in a, in a way, I can kind of see it, Seb. I mean, there's also some unsavoury stuff there as well. Bad character, not someone you want in your dressing room, not a particularly loyal player. I think West Ham fans will, will tell you that. Stoke fans will tell you the same. Good footballer during his prime. Physical, athletic, good finisher—all the things that you want in a Premier League forward. But this moment in time, you really again, like you're trying to find as many combustible elements and just chuck them on the Man United fire. Mm. It's crazy. Well, there was also with Arnautovic, there was the allegations of racism as well, wasn't there? Which really does not help. Yeah, I mean, if that's true, of course Man United shouldn't be signing him. Mm. Like, and if you, he denies them as well, you should probably point that yeah, out. Yeah, sure. but it, if you're like I, I've seen, um, I think it's from a. a, a Man United fan group or uh, someone representing a Man United fan group talking about kind of the club's values and one of the, the sentences which stayed with me was that well you can't just do that you can't go back on these values just because you suddenly have a squad shortage and I couldn't agree more with that because I think too often clubs do do things just because of a short-term desperate footballing need rather than kind of without really thinking about what the effect on its um, on the club's reputation or club standing or more importantly, on um, what fan, how, how fans' relationship with the club is likely to be impacted by doing something like that. Yeah. Um, and that kind of stuff should always be more, well, should certainly become more important than it currently is in modern football, I think. Yeah. And okay. the, the idea of Arnautovic is to bring in a strong character that can, you know, try to set, not set standards, but something that can that's. Like, lift the heaviest water vessels in Old Trafford. I don't know, someone who's it, like fiery is. and gives you a bit of something extra in the dressing room. That's the idea. Yeah. If you look at it, I would look to what Liverpool did when they were building this whole team. They signed James Milner, mm. like who sets professional standards. Players like that, Henderson, that's a different kind of character, a strong mm. character who is reliable and doesn't create unwanted noise and distraction. Well, John, Lisandro Martinez looked a little fiery, didn't he? Yeah. It probably uh, should have been sent off. Yeah. How, how, otherwise, though, how was his debut? <laughs> it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because we spent so long talking about how whether or not you could play like 
short centre-backs in yeah. the Premier League. And I didn't feel like he was put under any pressure from, Apart from like, aerial floor, situations. Yeah, exactly. The so there's a few situations where he was seemed a little bit slow off the mark. Um, that The back line, as, as JJ's already mentioned, was, was an interesting one. So you've got Martinez, who's just been brought in. And then you've got Maguire, who's spent the last goodness knows how many seasons four five seasons playing in left center back mm. position then just being moved across to the other side which like i think that's i think that's a big shift like you're defending the same situations but the other way around you're making the opposite movements so yeah. um i did think it was pretty pretty torrid and and obviously brighton just really good at, at getting the ball into those dangerous areas so uh, i think it's it's one of those ones where when the system doesn't work everyone looks out of shape and out of off off the level they should be at the big question is like how quick is it going to take ten Hag to identify the solutions to the problems and sort them out and I think he can do that and I think he will do that and I think it's as you said like Jurgen Klopp took a while to get that Liverpool team turned turned around the big question is is going to be whether he can do that with the players at his disposal well, I think let, let me ask I mean obviously we talked a little bit about new players potentially coming in but the as I said with uh, the Arsenal-Crystal Palace game, it's the first game of the season. Obviously, Manchester United losing with a new manager and the same set, yeah. mostly the same set of players. It, the, the instant story is, oh, the crap, it's exactly the same problems as last year. Mm. It's always going to be the same thing. Everybody piles on it instantly. Uh, for that reason, I do want to point out that there were good things that we saw in the second half. We've seen good things from Eric Ten Hag's team in pre-season. Brighton is an extremely difficult opening yep. game. I don't yep. want to make excuses for them, but there are realities that would make that... that, that We've just that done that with Arsenal, right? We've right? just said yeah. Arsenal's opening game is really difficult. Brighton is is probably the hardest team to they face. Had, was it the outside of the top six last season? They had the best results against the top six? I think so. Uh, I think you know, so they know exactly how to beat teams like, like Manchester United. So it's a really tricky opener. I think as well, like the, the, the background of, of Brighton being just the complete opposite makes them look worse too. Yeah. And it's worth praising Brighton as well. I think because you consider the fact that they've lost Yves Basuma, who was fundamental to them previously. They yeah. lost Kukurea like a week ago, sure, and they've just not blinked. They've just they, they still they all know that it's as you said as you said before. They all know the system. Yeah. They all know their roles in the system. And the point of the system isn't just to be a system; it's to give the players the confidence yeah. to know I can do this because my teammates will be in the positions that I expect sure. them to be. And I think that's the that's the that's the thing that Eric Ten Hag mentioned in the post match interview is that the players didn't have confidence in the system yeah. and that's what they, they they need to learn so it's a question of how long it takes them to get the system working in those competitive fixtures well of course uh, you know another element to the story is that uh, graham potter of course clearly overlooked by the manchester united hierarchy when it came to uh, looking for a, a new manager they wanted one with uh, with champions league experience there it's where potter would have the exact same problems ten Hag has because the yeah. players can't do what he wants them to do of course Yeesh. Now, uh, one well, team that one definitely doesn't have issues with their forward options, Steve Hankey, that doesn't work, that one, because we've moved on there from that <laughs> bit of the conversation. So uh, disappointed for you not to have uh, changed that live. Uh, of course, I'm a maverick, as is John, and we will do whatever we want at any time. Did you so, know that um, mm. Pep Guardiola's first two games in Barcelona, he lost the first one to Numancia and then drew Racing Santander and everyone was like, he's rubbish, it's not well, going to work. Didn't he lose, I've always didn't he lose thought his he was first rubbish. Game but then Cruyff came out well. after that um, New Answer game and said it's the best performance in years, which kind of helps, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be doing that. Uh, West Ham nil. to Manchester City. Hmm. Erling Haaland's pretty good, isn't he? Seb. Yeah. I don't know why I said I, your name like I hate you. <laughs> I don't. Well, I feel like the conversation a week ago after the Community Shield was, was really uh, symptomatic of what football is, which is uh, one new signing must be great, one must be awful, and when they play against each other especially. So Erling Haaland is a phenomenal footballer. Uh, he is... Uh, it's an unkind word, but he is quite freakish. And I, I think I've always thought... When I watched him play in, in Germany, I always thought one of the, the, the hardest things to defend with him is when you see a player of that size you don't really expect him to come equipped with a burst of acceleration mm. or the burst of acceleration. That's that what people has. say about me. It, you are, once when you I'm get moving, <laughs> once you get moving, you're quite rapid. I mean, it's like pushing yeah. a lorry down the hill. Oh, it man. takes a little while and then eventually momentum. If you're a defender and you see a player like that, there's got to be some part of you which thinks, okay, big physical guy is going to be a bit static. When that player accelerates and is able to, I don't know, uh, reach through balls of a particular pace or distance, um, that's got to be really disorientating. 
I don't know what, mm. obviously what it's like to play professional football, but if you're a, if you're a centre-back maintaining a defensive line, distance between you and your goalkeeper, it's got to be really hard. And I, I think the second haul and goal, in fact, both haul and goals really, because the, the penalty resulted from exactly that. Lovely yeah. through ball. He gets there just in time in a way that, that um, Ariola um, misjudges. That, that, that one is the, is the indicator for me because there's nothing there. He turns. He, he, he's about three meters behind the defensive line. I should say behind, as in relation to the to the yep. goal. He turns as the ball goes past him. He, he he knows when to make the run. He's already running before the yeah. ball's played. When the ball comes through, he then ends up like he's well on side, and he's got all the space in the world to win that penalty. I think if you can turn and do that against uh, West Ham's defence, then Man City are going to score all kinds of goals that they just well, wouldn't have been able to score last season. I think also the goal that we're going to get pretty familiar with is the second one, um, because it's undefendable. Like, I don't mm. know what you do with that, because what do you say to a player? Like, become quicker. Yeah. You know, like, it, it's a sensible distance between the goalkeeper and the, um, the last defensive player, and the ball is just that good, and Holland's run is just that precise. And he's going to score. Like I, I'm not sure what the answer is. Even after the fact, you can't sort of say, yeah. "Well, you know, you should have, you, you should have been on the edge of your penalty box when the ball's 50 yards from goal." Obviously not. <laughs> well, you said at the beginning as well. You don't expect a player of that size to have that no. that kind of pace. I mean, the commentary I, I think um, compared the goal to the sorts of goals that Thierry Henry would score, who was not a player of huge size, but was obviously just a fast player. I mean, it's quite. It's amazing that, that someone uh, as tall as, uh, as Holland is being compared to Henri in the way that he's finishing. Well, I, I suppose the only similarity is, is the way that he opens his body. The sure. way he moves is completely different. His yeah. habits off the ball are very different. The way he joins up the play and involves himself in the build-up phase is very different to Henri. But the effect in terms of like the volume he's likely to produce in front of goal, that's the similarity too. Mm. And I tell you, like this, the Bundesliga attack thing annoys me. And not just because I, not just because I, I live in Germany and enjoy watching the Bundesliga. It's because it ignores the fact that the tax is actually on teams that don't use good players properly. So Jaden Sancho, that, that's not a Bundesliga tax. That's a team doesn't know what to do with a good player tax, in mm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's really got nothing to do with the Bundesliga. It's just, firstly, uh, players from abroad come to a very, very competitive, very wealthy Premier League now. That's difficult. Comes with cultural differences too. But also, like, there aren't that many clubs. We, we just finished talking about Brighton, who I'd imagine, without knowing a lot about their recruitment, that they find players who are more components. They're... They're chiseled into shape, dropped into the formation, and they become a Trossard, a Cucurella, or a Danny Welbeck, and it all works perfectly. There are many mm-hmm. other teams who just think, I've got loads of money and I want that over there, that thing that's doing really, really well at Dortmund or Barcelona or Real Sociedad, and give it to me and I'm just going to chuck it in my starting eleven like it's fancy football and it's going to yes. go really, really well. It doesn't. Holland is a phenomenon. Defensive standards in the Bundesliga aren't what they were. Um, yeah. I think that's very, very fair. But he is a phenomenal, phenomenal player. That he's a freak a for sure. Goals. Oh, he's um, the, 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 the thing I love most about him actually is when he scores and when someone's assisted them. At Dortmund, it used to be Jaden Sancho, who's quite a small guy in comparison mm. to Holland. And Holland would get so excited and run after him. And you, and there's a little bit of Jaden mm. Sancho, which just thinks, ah. <laughs> you can see afraid, this massive yeah. guy with legs and body. And uh. my favorite so, Holland yeah. story is one Seb <laughs> told us on the podcast a few months ago that uh, he used to drive around Dortmund with his windows rolled down with the Champions oh, League music this, playing, this, this blaring around his car. This was in Salzburg. So before in he joined Salzburg. Dortmund, oh, he was, was going to make his Champions League debut for RB Salzburg. Mm. Um, and uh, he he put out a video on his Instagram of him driving around downtown Salzburg with all his windows open and just the Champions League music on repeat. Really yeah. loudly. Just loves yeah. it. <laughs> Just really, really likes it. Well, that. another player who I'm sure would love to play in the Champions League at some point w- with West Ham is uh, Gianluca Scamacca, John, who's in my fantasy team because I've been told by someone I trust that he's the greatest player of all time. You're saying that as though it was me. I'd like it to distance myself from this comment. <laughs> I don't trust you. That should <laughs> yeah, have been clear. <laughs> yeah, but obviously he's fantastic. Yeah, he's a good player. Um, he came on late on. Obviously isn't up to match fitness and stuff at the moment. Uh, had a decent header at one point. Good header. Um, yeah, I thought so. Big lad. Big lad, yeah. A lot of him. <laughs> yeah, there's lots to go around. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we're going to see more from Jan Lucas Gamaga, hopefully, when he releases his calendar. You know, that's when we'll see more of him. You get it? 
you're making under a, the shirt. You know, yeah. I don't get this one. Well, well, you know, well, well, let me let me break it down for you. We'll see more of him because, I, of course, the intention being we'll see him play football more and we'll talk about him more. But when he releases his calendar, topless calendar, we'll see. We will literally see more of him. You didn't see topless calendar. Your assumption. Well, was no, that. but who makes a calendar but with tops on? You can buy like a, a calendar like Neil Lennon. No one makes yeah. tops on calendars anymore. The yeah. only market for calendars is either landscapes or topless. I'm going to do yes and, but uh, I think <laughs> this is a rare miss from Joe Devine. Well, that sounds very much like a no but. <laughs> anyway, after the break, the only team likely to... Ch- oh, that one doesn't work, Steve, because we've moved on from that bit of the conversation. So really, you really need to up your game uh, because these uh, segues that you are so unprofessionally writing for me, a man who does not need segues written for him, by the way. A man who's unsegwayable. We're having a break now. A lovely break that was was fantastic one of one of the best breaks you've brought in a producer that you're now ignoring every single thing that well that's my prerogative <laughs> yeah yes anyway uh, Fulham to to Liverpool JJ this was a corker I enjoyed this on a Saturday morning after having watched Arsenal the night before settle in wasn't even sure I was going to watch the game stuck it on delighted I did that's a lovely story, and I think another story about this uh, is how good Mitrovic is. Everyone says, can he do it at the top level, even though he scored lots of goals at international level? For can he? Years? Yes, absolutely. He can, he I did. He's good. He did it at the top level. I, I also feel a bit of, um, I like it when a manager predicts a player is very good, and it just takes them a little bit longer than maybe they thought he would to become really better. They've always thought Mitrovic yeah. would be a good player. I yeah. think we should remember that we've only had one game, and it's uh, worth, I agree. Well, I think yeah. what you saw from here is that... So Stop like, tempering us, John. Yeah, the, the hold-up play, like, obviously a Amazing. Seems to just have his head a bit more switched on than before and doing the good things a striker should do, like being able to hold the ball up, whatever. But the way he dribbles past Van Dyke is really, really exciting. The, the little dribble to, to take the ball away from him, mm. he clashes knees, goes down. Um, the header is such good movement. He's clearly, I think, preying on uh, Alexander Arnold not being able to match him yes. head for head. Can we talk about that? Because what I noticed over the weekend was two camps of people. Camp one was Alexander Arnold's terrible, how is he alive? And camp two was, uh, you can't ever say anything bad about Alexander Arnold because he's not in the team to be a defender, despite the fact that he, he is a he's a, d- a defender. Uh, it is possible there's a middle ground here, isn't there? Because I agree with, with camp two more than I agree with camp one. I, I agree that Alexander Arnold is alive. But uh, camp two being, he's obviously not in the Liverpool team. Uh, for his uh, for his defensive actions, what he brings to the, te- the team as an attacker is unparalleled when it comes to players from that position. Clearly an incredible player. That doesn't mean that to say that maybe he should jump at the back post is then justifying all of the other negative things that are said about him. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, not a striker. I'm not a defender. I don't know how football actually works. I'm the worst person to be hosting this show and asking this question. But what do you think, John? I think that there's a number of things that you can say but mm. one of them the, the not jumping thing I, I that's not necessarily a conscious decision on his part to not jump it's not that he can see the situation from a bird's eye view I will like decide can, not right? to jump that's not you're saying that I don't think happen. he did that yeah. I think that he's just been blindsided by Mitrovic who's much sure. bigger than him and he's Mitrovic has obviously got the momentum coming in Alexander Arnold is is more static so he's you know, he's expecting the ball's going to arrive at his head, it doesn't, uh, and whatever. Yeah. Um, I would say that there's, I think there's a lot of fullbacks in the Premier League who would have done exactly the same thing. Um, I also don't think that Alexander Arnold is in the team to be defending against sure, Mitrovic, mm-hmm. right? That his upside comes from what he can do with the ball. You're camp two guy. I'm t- towards camp two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think there's a lot of people who don't like to criticise Alexander Arnold because of. <clears throat> Their camp because two of camp station because yeah. of their camp yeah because of all the criticism he gets from camp yeah one. exactly and and I I do think that there's certain areas that his game defensively is is lacking like positionally he can be he can be quite poor but for a team like Liverpool that's fine because you're not going to be facing those sorts of situations a lot um, yeah, so it's really get like hoofed balls to the back post for yeah. to leap a header mm. and he's so good on the ball and he creates so many chances that. He's essentially, he's a, he's a playmaker. He's one of their main playmakers. He's like a number mm. 10, but starts at, at right back. That's the thing. Mm. You forget what all these positions are. It's the reason why 
Um, it hasn't been considered for England as first choice for so long because if you think like the multiple positions he can play is right back but he's mostly in midfield or wide right or like a right winger sometimes it turns up in the 10 slot he sometimes wanders over to the left he does loads of stuff in the game whereas like Reese James for example can play at centre back because yeah. he can do that he's like Bill he's a different sort of shape for a start yeah um, Alexander Arnold's more slight and uh, lean so he can like, run and do all skillful things James who's actually a very good attacker as well yeah uh, is a bigger lad and can like Alexander Arnold could stuff. slither through a thin doorway and Reese James would just walk through the wall. Yeah, I think yeah. that's exactly what he'd do. Yeah. yeah. Different do you, skill sets. Do you know what it reminds oh. me of? You remember when um uh Jan Cruyff picked um Sergio Busquets' dad to play in goal at Barcelona and he was not the best goalkeeper, but good and brave with his feet. And um to an extent the same was really true of Victor Valdez, like good goalkeeper. But the idea was that it doesn't matter if you make mistakes because what you produce and what you're able to contribute to the team is worth more than that. And if you make mistakes, okay, but don't let it inhibit the way you play. And I know it's a slightly different situation, but I think the mentality has to be the same with someone like Alexander-Arnold. He gives you Mm. so much on the ball that you're going to have the occasional Vinicius Junior in the Champions League final moment. And also what happened to good ball, great header. Like this is why clubs, when they're when they're trying to sure. sign fullbacks, wingbacks, that's why they kind of they privilege height now and structure uh, and and uh, stature. So like one of the kind of players linked to main item this summer is Malagusti from um, from Leon. He's massive. It's not the same body shape. And mm. this mm-hmm. is kind of like in a, a Trent Alexander Arnold situation. What are you going to do when Alexander Mitrovic has a run at you at the back post? You're going to get beaten to the ball. It's just yeah. 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 Like Hands Van Dyke got done like one v one on the ground, yep. like against him, he gave away the penalty. Like Van Dyke, sure. that's an error. He's not getting called out for that. Yeah, exactly the same. Sure. Yeah. Both errors. True. Okay. Well, you know what wasn't an error? Darwin Nunez oh. being signed. Well, the Athletic also no. true. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Uh, but uh, Darwin Nunez uh, came off the bench, scored a goal, made a goal. Uh, I mean, uh, aided Liverpool's way back into this game. We haven't talked about Fulham at all, by the way, apart from Mitrovic. Fulham are fucking awesome. Let's talk about them very quickly because uh, who was good? Pereira uh, from Manchester United. I thought was very good. You thought the other forwards were, were, were good as well, JJ. I thought Harrison Reed had a good game, but I thought players like De Cordova Reed and uh, Cabano at wide were doing really well with just keeping the ball under pressure and they were being confident in possession. I yeah. think they just looked really well coached. It's like a, it's listed as a four-four-two in places, but I think it's more like a four-two-three-one really, yeah, which which leading yeah. it. Um, I just think they looked very well, like they knew they could get something out of it. Like they didn't come into it thinking they might lose. Like Aberdeen went yeah. into the first game of the season at Celtic last week, and the manager had essentially gone, "We're going to lose this because it's too difficult." Whereas Fulham went into this looking like they were going to be all right. And they yeah. had I the, mean, they'll take confidence from the game, won't they? Oh, they, yeah, they, they were. Yeah, it's the thing. It's hard to work out how good the promoted teams are from the first few weeks because often you get a random win on the first weekend. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Everyone's always excited and, you know, yeah, exactly. loads of adrenaline and, yeah. And you can't, rep- you can't really, you know, manufacture that. It just, it just exists so you get that sort of performance. But did you know Marco Silva was their manager? Yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> and then I thought, I'll recognise that young man. Who's that? And then they said Marco Silva and I said, that's Marco Silva. And then I just double-checked it was the same Marco Silva that I remember. And it turns out, John, it is. Yes. Yeah. And? Okay. Well, uh, Liverpool, uh, you know, yeah. Thiago injures, <laughs> eh? What about that? Yeah. Yeah. There's a good question to be asked there because I think maybe the, one there? of the issues... Can you tell me what it is, please? Is, well, it's where's their creativity coming from, right? Oh, because yeah. Where is their creativity Arnold. coming from? Yeah, well, it, yeah, exactly. Mm, I feel as though Fulham were just really well-structured out of possession and it, Liverpool just seemed to struggle with getting the ball into any sort of Off dangerous the areas. boil. Yeah. Klopp maybe. was quite, pretty... Uh, not damning of them, but he said that there wasn't a performance at all that they come to expect. They were so good in the charity, in the community shield. Mm, that, the charity uh, community shield. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Charity for the community. And I've bored myself with my own thing. Yeah. Well, you know, apparently uh, Liverpool have been linked with Inter Milan's Marcelo Brozovic. Yeah, like, I guess. I can see that, yeah. Brozovic would be a deeper lying player, so it would be more of a Fabinho replacement mm. right yeah okay uh you do this one i give up says steve hankey well <laughs> he's trying to best me everyone Fankles, hankles For, oh good lord that was awful wasn't it that was horrible that made me cringe fankles. inside when you said fankles hankles i don't like that at all <laughs> hankles don't is pretty bad i don't again. really like hankles that. is bad it, it makes me think of cankles yeah isn't yeah. that the the large ankle that's when your calf runs into your ankle yeah cankle. that's gonna happen to me in the future 
Yeah. What are, what are hankles then? Hankles are when love handles <laughs> run into your into your ankle. <laughs> it's the handles, so it's all the way down. Okay. It's not. I mean, that's also that's going to happen to me in the future. <laughs> when you said you're going to beat me in a race. Yeah. <laughs> extra, extra, true. Centrifugal force. I don't know what I'm saying. Eintracht Frankfurt won six. Bayern München. Uh, Seb, uh, Bayern scored six goals. You've been warning. You've been you've been hammering the warning sign for some time that Bayern Munich are good. I feel like it's a warning sign. You didn't really need to hammer. It's like a warning sign, like outside an electrical room or a power plant or something. Yes, like, that, like a neon that's just constantly flashing. Don't step yeah. on the rail. Yeah. It sounds uh, like they were good, though. They were good. Uh, Eintracht were dreadful. So Bayern's Ew. first goal was a Joshua Kimmich uh, free kick, which happened whilst the the stadium was still hazy from pre-match flares. Mm. And it seemed to do something to Eintracht because they were atrocious for the rest of a half, which they would end 5-0 down. Nothing hugely interesting about that, other than Bayern have a, a fun little automatism within their um, Sadio Mane-led attack now, which is that, um, obviously... If you think of their uh, attacking structure as a kind of a triangle with Manny at the tip and Nabri and Misiala and, and Muller behind, what they seem to be doing, and they, they try and do this again and again, is get Manny in a deeper position, invert the triangle, so to speak, invert the pyramid, and have those three players ahead of him while he either beats a defender, spins into space, and kind of distorts the defence and fractures their line. Um, oh. You can see this. If you look at the, I think it's the fourth goal, it's the one that ends with Misiala scoring. It's yep. a really good example of it working there. And it's interesting because it's not something they could have done with Lewandowski, a completely different profile of player. It's something that clearly has been designed around Manny's abilities. And it's made, I don't know if it's made Bayern Munich better, but it's making them dangerous in a different way because there's all sorts of things happening between those four players. They're interchanging their positions. They are, yeah, they're fun. They're fun. I, I, fun and Bayern Munich don't really go mm. together normally but I'm enjoying watching them and I, I think they are good the one thing to say though is that um, in a different world this game might have finished 12-4 because oh. um, Manuel Neuer had one of those games where he wasn't getting enough attention so tried to kind of insert himself into the proceedings and it went wrong um, right. once in a way that sort of cost them a goal and had a couple of other moments which the very sort of latter stages Manuel Neuer do you um, not like Manuel Neuer? It sounds like you dislike I him. I think he's very, very talented. I just think sometimes he doesn't know how helpful or unhelpful he's being by... Mm. He's very proactive, a very aggressive goalkeeper, and there's lots to say about that. And sometimes, as we said before, you need to just forget about the mistakes. At times, I feel like he goalkeeps with his ego a little bit, and yeah. I don't really like that. I understand mm. what happens. You're a World Cup winning goalkeeper. You've won a million Bundesligas. You are a Bayern Munich legend forever. I accept that. But... He's had some weird moments recently, and he's always had that in his career. And sure, uh, yeah, sure. but Bayern watched them because I'm really impressed by how quickly Nagelsmann has adapted to having money there and what he's been able to create. Because if you think about right, sort of two proper games, and already the chemistry is off the scale. Yeah. And Bayern could, and this is no exaggeration, Bayern could have had nine or ten. They, they were that, that dangerous. They're a little bit fragile with the ball, without the ball, but. Um, super potent with it well speaking of uh jonathan dog mckenzie you, you tweeted a thread at the, the weekend related to bayern's uh newish style you seem to think it's a little there's a little bit of the older red bulls about it yeah for sure so in the past julian nagelsman we've always talked about him as being maybe a bit more of a structured possession manager a bit closer to the spanish school so people like guardiola um and the idea being you know you you control the ball when mm. you lose the ball high up you Counter press, win it back, but you're, you're, the, the main idea is just possession as a form of defence and, and and try and create through that as well. But now we're seeing, I think, much more Red Bull ideas coming through. So a lot more transitional moments, a lot more mm. central direct attacking, um, which yeah raises a lot of questions for me because like clearly Julian Nagelsmann's made a decision to have this sort of paradigm shift. Um, it's not like what they've been doing before, and I guess for me the big question is why have they done that? It do I mean obviously in the Bundesliga the game against Frankfurt like Frankfurt were just so happy to be open at the back in those transitional moments that I can see why Nagelsmann would want to do that in the league. I think in a if you if you play in a league which is largely transitional and you make yourselves the best team at transition you're just 
you're putting yourself as, 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 a, as a real threat there. And the question for me, I suppose, is like, what does this look like in the Champions League? Mm. Um, we've just seen Real Madrid win the Champions League in playing a style of play where in certain moments they were able to be quite transitional and get and get goals when they needed to. So is Nagelsmann looking at that and thinking, okay, the majority of teams, the really elite teams in the Champions League, they're going to play this sort of structured possession. If we can embrace this sort of transitional approach and be the best at it and we can force teams into being mm. transitional, then actually I think that you can destabilise some of the... Because you're not going to beat Man, Man City playing... Playing well, structured football, to, no. You're, you know, you're not with 100% your not. with your ankles, no. no. Um, but I, I think if you can if you can play this really transitional attacking football um, in the Champions League, then you can bring Man City down to your level, and then you're playing the sort of style of football that you're better at than them, and as a result, you can actually benefit yeah. from it. I think okay, I'll be interested well, to see what Steve Hankey has told Ooh, me, sorry. Seb, that uh, JJ's camera is about to die in four minutes. He's typed it on here so as not to introduce it into the uh, to the actual recording of the show. But I refuse your authority, Steve Hankey, and I tell the people at home what they need to know, which is that I've got a quick anecdote to tell people in the next three and a half minutes now. My anecdote was cut. Anyway, uh, John McKenzie, thanks so much for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you. I've had a grand old time. Lovely. JJ Bull the Bullard, thanks for joining. I've obviously had a good time too. Auf Wiedersehen, Sebs and Staff and Bloor. I have also had a very, very nice time. That's good. And uh, thanks as usual, well, not as usual, as unusual... To, uh, to Steve Hankey, or Daddy Steve, Hankles, whatever it is we're going to call him. Hey, Steve, have you got a Twitter account? I do. It's Steve Nobody should follow Hankey. that. <laughs> now, we'll be back next week with more. Uh, until then, <laughs> thanks to producer Jamie as well. Was, that was extra rude. Too rude, maybe. What is your, actually, what is your Twitter account? Just waiting for you to... No, no, I want no, people to be able no. to send questions to you that you might be able to put into the show. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, shouldn't we use the TIFO football account? I don't think so. <laughs> Let's use yours. I love it oh, when man. we have business discussions on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? What's your, what's your Twitter account there, Steve? Uh, so it is at Steve. <laughs> I'm not going to do it, don't worry. Okay, underscore. <laughs> Hanky. H-A-N-K-E-Y. Like yeah. the tissue. Steve underscore Hanky at what? At ah, Twitter. Twitter.com. At Twitter. <laughs> there we go, at Twitter.com. What a great email address to be able to send uh, <laughs> questions to there. Everyone, everything's going to be fine. And thanks, as, as usual, to producer Jamie as well, who, uh, whilst uh, still in the room, is obviously less important than he was last week. So, you know, thanks, Jamie. All the best to those of you listening and watching, and we'll be back again next week with more. Until then, goodbye. The Athletic.